animation and, and simulation together into, for a game. And it's, it's part of our, our current physics engine, so an unfortunate side effect is that is it means it has to actually work. So <laughs> it's, not just, um, yeah, it's not just ideas that haven't been tested. Okay. So the primary goal of this um, presentation is to describe a collection of algorithms uh, used to solve the dynamic equations of characters, um, incorporate animation data, and then integrate things forward in time. So just a complete, a complete solution of, of those problems. And the main algorithms for this are the structurally recursive methods um, for inverse dynamics, which are um, often called like the Featherstone methods or the, um, the articulated rigid body method and, and very other na various other names. Um, implicit Euler integration, which is a, a technique for integration, uh, and mathematical optimization, which is um, used to solve equations. Okay, by the end of this lecture, I should have an intuitive understanding of, of how, how these methods work. Um, I think it's, it's a, the main goal is not just to cover all the, uh, all the equations and, um, and yeah, just so, so run through how, how the system works, but understand exactly what's going on physically. I think one thing that's important about physics is, um, is it's, it's possible to have an intuitive understanding of what's happening, um, and I think that's really important for creating games with good physics. If you kind of under, understand the way the systems work, I think it's a lot easier to work with them. And I think a lot, a lot of people are working with third-party APIs now, such as like Havoc, for example. And, um, and probably the, the, biggest, the, the biggest stumbling block they hit into is, some of it has to do with the system, but a lot of it has to do with understanding what's going on and understanding why the system is behaving as it is. So, Okay, so I have to apologize, actually. This, uh, this, the uh, word art is a suggestion from Casey. I was, I was putting together little block diagrams, and Casey said, hey, use the word art. So there's going to be a lot of colorful stuff here. <laughs> kind of, yeah. So anyway, this is all Casey's fault. Okay. The basic way, basically, the way that the framework works is you have um, is you take your so Q is degrees of freedom. You take your initial guess for accelerations. It goes into the mathematical optimization system. Um, it goes to the integrator to set things forward in time. The integrator uses inverse dynamics to compute residuals. Um, which feed back into the mathematical optimization. So this is kind of the view from like far out. This is the way the main systems work together. Okay, and, and then the way in which you incorporate animation data, the animation data fits into the initial, the initial guess, um, and it feeds into the li um, limitations when you're doing the residual. There's also penalty methods, which I won't cover too much here, but those are important for the inverse dynamics. So again, so the, basically the way the system works is you have um, mathematical optimization, which solves nonlinear equations, and the, and the interface to that, or the, the communication to that, goes through the integrator, which takes the, the guess from the optimizer, evaluates a function through inverse dynamics, and feeds back the residual, and then the process repeats until you have the right solution. But I'll cover this in more detail. This is just sort of the brief, you know, overview. Okay, secondary goal of the presentation is to get a pretty fast game tech, which actually worked, which is really funny. In fact, I got two. Um, Okay, now just a discussion on the framework in general. Physics and games is similar to where um, 3D rendering was in the early 90s. Um, there's many different approaches to solving the problem, but there's not, uh, no commonly accepted um, standard. So there's no, no triangle. Like in rendering, it took, it took a little bit of time before they, um, they came up with the idea, let's just use, every, let's just use triangles for everything and, and be done with it, rather than going with different kind of you know, ray casting and, 
and various different solutions to rendering. Uh, I have to thank Chris Acker for this analogy. So, um, I predict that this framework will become the triangle of, of physics and games. It's kind of a bold statement, but I'm going to make it anyway. <laughs> um, oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, here's the statement. I'm often wrong. So. <laughs> but anyway, that was, uh, <laughs> that was supposed to be after this one. Okay, so um, and the reason why I th part of the reason I think this is the case is, is it's very versatile. Um, so it can handle a lot of things, arbitrary degrees of freedom, such as like articulated characters, rigid bodies, particles, um, finite, you know, deformable objects, all in one, all in one system. It's robust, which is really, really important. Um, it, which it basically fails and sucks less often than, than other systems, right, which is important. So giving it. Um, Designers are free to give it fairly arbitrary data, and things kind of work, right? And that also carries forward to performance, which is which is a little bit surprising, but it's it's the case in that in that the um, like the best case performance is probably not as good as some other techniques, but the steady state and worst case performance is is actually very good. So from a game standpoint, this is really important because because um, usually you're worried about worst case scenarios, like when lots of things are happening at once, and and you don't want the game to stop or crash. Um, the simple API, uh, this, is, this is really important. Um, this, fr this framework here, once it's all coded up or like it's in a separate module, um, it, can solve, it can solve the systems and you can create physical effects very simply um, in terms of all you really have to do is compute forces at a given, um, for a given state. Um, so you don't have to worry about the derivatives of those forces. You don't have to worry about a, a lot of other things. You don't have to worry too much about stability of the forces because of the implicit nature. So um, designers are free to create things like springs and potentials and other physical effects that they can just describe with a force acting on a body given a certain velocity and position. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's, it's, it's only a few lines of code to add those kind of things. Mainly because these, these systems in here um, are robust enough to handle a wide range of inputs. And there's also explicit control of the degrees of freedom. Um, which, which is important. Like what, for example, with characters, one way to represent them is as a bunch of rigid bodies connected by constraints. Another way to represent them is with joint angles. Um, and joint angles are, or, or quaternions or whatever, are, are much easier, to, are, are usually what you want to control explicitly, not necessarily a position of rigid bodies. And you may want to put certain velocities and accelerations on those joint angles. So this is a little more direct um, because you can directly control them rather than doing it indirectly by positioning rigid bodies. And this is useful for animation, as we'll, as we'll see later. Okay, there we go back. Okay, so just for some terminology, all physical all, um, entities are made up of frames. The frame has degrees of freedom that can perform um, spatial transformation from local space to global space. And we're only going to consider rigid bodies for, in these examples, um, but it extends to other, other systems, like um, mostly deformable objects are, are the other, other thing that have been implemented with it. And this is, um, I don't know if anyone saw the crash demo at, at GDC and E3, but that was an example of finite elements in the system. Okay, so here's a, a set of character example. Um, so everything is represented with minimal coordinates. Um, the system that I mentioned, actually joint quaternions, is often called um, generalized coordinates as opposed to, um, well, as opposed to explicit position orientation of every body. And in ge the, the general um, strategy is always to minimize the number of degrees of freedom um, such that you don't have extra constraints. Um, so there's as few unknowns as possible. And, and joint angles generally do that for open loop systems, although they don't handle closed loop. 
systems which require constraints. So the, the DOF breakdown for the breakup for this character is just um, yeah, kind of a, a standard skeleton with, um, yeah. Now, now the animation might have, uh, sorry, you, you might, might have a more complex character with like big fingers and stuff like that. And, um, and those can be, I'll show you later how those can be kind of incorporated into a system with almost, it was very, very little cost, provided that they're kinematic. Okay, so in terms of driving the uh, dynamics of characters, so what I'm going to describe is based on the structure recursive method, which I've, and there's a number of different names for these. And these are very powerful um, algorithms that are, they're actually very intuitive. Um, they may not be as intuitive um, in a lot of the text in which they're described, but when you, when you actually think through the, the force balance equations, it actually all makes sense. So, yeah, so mostly what I'm going to do a lot of verbal descriptions, less on the equations. There are some equations, of course, but I'm going to try to emphasize on and describing things verbally. Okay, so considering the momentum of a rigid body, um, just a standard notation, you have M, which is the uh, six by six inertia matrix, which is essentially the mass and moments of inertia, and you have the um, 60 spatial ve um, velocity vector, which is the um, yeah, angular and linear. Okay, um, some notes on the mass matrix is that um, since M is in global coordinates, it's generally dependent on the orientation in space. So, so the matrix actually changes um, with respect to orientation. And this is what gives rise to things like the Coriolis um, accelerations. So often when people are driving dynamics, they have these extra terms in the acceleration for the Coriolis acceleration and stuff. Right? Um, those are just essentially the derivatives of the matrix M. So you don't actually need to deal with those explicitly if you're dealing with momentum equations as opposed to as driving accelerations at a given point in time. So in a lot of cases, there's, those, there's special terms like this, especially like the derivatives of the inertia, which, which in some cases can be extremely expensive, like with articulated characters. And part, part of what makes the Featherstone method so, seem so complex from an equation standpoint is all these um, derivatives of M, which give rise to centrifugal accelerations and, and um, Coriolis terms. Um, but luckily, based on the equations that we're using with inverse dynamics and momentum equations, we can just ignore all that. And that all gets handled automatically um, by, the, by the mathematical optimization. Okay. So um, conservation of momentum, basically have the mass times velocity is equal to uh, mass times velocity plus the integral of the forces. And by de definition of velocity, which is the um, derivative of positions, we have, we have the way to update positions. So these are the main equations that we need to solve to ensure that simulation is physically accurate. And so conserve momentum and, and conserve uh, energy for, for conservative potentials and conservative systems. Okay, so let's start with the, uh, everyone's favorite straw man, which is forward Euler. I think just what every integration step, um, text starts with forward Euler just to, uh, to justify why they need a better solution. Um, so forward Euler is, is really simple. You just approximate um, all the derivatives with, um, with we, we approximate the derivatives throughout an integral with what they are at the very beginning of the integral. And that's great because you can always compute what they are at the beginning of the integral because you have all the state. So, you, so in a game scenario, you just, given the state of all the objects, you just compute all the forces at that state um, and then divide that by the mass um, and step it forward in time. Yeah, so actually these slides are a little bit updated from what's in the book. 
Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that these are put online afterwards. Um, like while I was, yeah, so I had a bit of time between the, uh, between the deadline and, and now, so I had added more stuff. Um, so this is a standard way of deriving the forward equations um, where we just compute f equals ma and, um, and, and this is, is generally just what everyone does. Um, and, and you have to take the inverse of the inertia matrix, which th this is kind of important because the inertia matrix for, as I mentioned before, for articulated characters and for general, generalized degrees of freedom, it can be extremely, um, can extremely dense. So computing the inverse of it is very expensive. So we're going to avoid that by using the nonlinear optimizer, or sorry, by using a, um, a, an optimization step. But it's, it's worth mentioning just um, for, okay. And um, as we know, the Euler is not very stable. So what we're going to do is we're going to use um, implicit Euler, which is sometimes called reverse Euler. But rather than computing the accelerations and at the uh, initial time, we compute them at the final time um, of the integration of the step, of the game step. Um, and then we just in, 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 um, integrate forward. Now, um, implicit Euler is unconditionally stable for stable systems. This, this is kind of, this discussing stability is kind of, um, is a very long topic. But one thing intuitively um, that, that's important to, to I mean, that, that's, that's useful to think about here is, is when you think about a stiff spring. So at the initial, um, at the initial time, at the beginning of a time step, um, you'll be here, and at the next time step, you'll be here. See the, the object's moved and the velocity is higher because this spring is compressed and it's pushing, right? Now, if you were to use um, um, forward Euler, you'd compute the force here, compute an acceleration, and it would go, go moving outward. Um, if, you, if you were to use implicit Euler, you would step it forward first and then compute the force. Um, and you'll see that because it's, it's less compressed, there's reduced force. Right? And this is kind of important because many, many systems are like this where they have a, um, a force opposing a change in energy. Um, and that gives rise to a change in the state that has, that, that has some feedback on what the force should actually be. So in this case here, implicit Euler kind of test values at future points in time and then computes what the corresponding force would be. And, and it kind of iterates through that until it finds a solution. So for systems that, that have um, forces that oppose energy, um, implicit Euler tends to subtract energy from the system because the resulting solution um, has, has, yeah, has the feedback of what, of what it's actually changed. So anyway, that's sort of a, a quick, you know, <laughs> twenty-second description of stability, um, yeah, without without discussing, you know, uh, other ugly concepts. Um, okay, so now, now we're approximating the integral as the uh, as a point in time, and we're going to introduce something called the that it's the acceleration. Oops. But it's actually, it's really just a, um, it's hard to describe this as an acceleration because in games we're always working with discrete time. But we're not working with um, explicitly, we don't really care too much about the derivative, what we care about is what the change is, you know, from one step to another. Most, most integration um, descriptions break the problem up into finding, uh, um, or most dynamics um, descriptions break it up into finding the accelerations on one hand, the instantaneous accelerations, and then integrating that forward in time. In games we want to solve both things that, we want to solve both problems. Um, and, uh, and it's actually a lot more convenient to put them together. So we actually take the, um, the implicit Euler equations and substitute those into the dynamics. Um, so it's all solved at once. And, and it turns out to be easier that way. 
So that so anyway, the acceleration here is really just um, it's it's a change in velocity over time. It's not necessarily the instantaneous acceleration, but we'll, we'll call it acceleration for convenience. But it's worth mentioning it's not necessarily the derivatives at a point. Okay. Well, one problem with these equations here is, is that we have um, they're difficult to solve because um, there's uh, we need points at we need to compute values at the future point in time. Like as I as I described as a spring example, where you want to compute what the force is at the end of the step, and you don't actually know where it is. So, um, as it turns out, though, we can we can um, repose or transform the, these problems into a convex optimization problem, which is what the uh, mathematical optimizer solves. So, the function that we're actually minimizing is related to system kinetic and potential energy. So, what we do is we transform the equations here, just um, multiply it by multiply the conservation of momentum equations here with um, with a velocity and we get some something that's a, a pseudo acceleration and the unknowns that we want to solve our accelerations and because um, by definition um, this one and this one are, are, are linear related to the um, to accelerations and the con what makes this convex optimization is the fact that we have physical constraints in the system okay um, oops. Okay, so um, this is what the energy system might look like. So th this is not actually direct real kinetic energy, but when you minimize the system, um, and if delta T was, was basically zero, um, you would have a, the, the solution to this equation is the same as what you'd have for the real dynamic equations. So uh, we don't actually care about this equation specifically, we only care about minimizing the equation. Uh, in which case we only have to deal with, with these terms in here because we want to find where the local minima is. Okay. Um, convex optimization problems, um, one of the problems is they have constraints on, on, the, uh, on the degrees of freedom. So what that might be is something like joint constraints or say collisions, contact constraints, other things. Um, so a common way of solving convex optimization is one is piecewise quadratic programming which kind of walks along constraints and, and solve the problem. Another is interior point method, which transforms the constraints into, pen, into penalty functions, which are um, minimized when the constraints are met. And um, it's interesting, though, because these, these are penalty methods that have been used by game developers for a long time. Um, and a lot of developers don't actually you know, know that they're, or don't, don't know too much about what they are, but they just make so much sense that you don't have to know. Essentially, you're just using, for a collision, for example, use a very stiff spring to prevent objects from going through the world. And it's very intuitive. Um, and this is used in a lot of other fields as well. Another, thing, another nice thing about using um, potentials rather than explicit constraints is you don't have to worry about over-constrained systems, which, which um, can be a real problem in physical systems, especially when you have rigid bodies and you have, and say you're trapped in a corner or something and there's multiple constraints that are fighting one another. Um, yeah, so that can lead to over-constrained systems. Okay, so in the way in which we're going to solve those is, um, is for a given acceleration, we know what it is, and then we need to step the, step the system forward in time and then compute all the forces. And, um, and the error here, oops. And basically, if the momentum equations do not balance out, that gives rise to a residual, and we minimize this residual. And when this is minimized, everything works out. 
So it's a good ana um, analogy to, to this. Because basically what we're doing is we're solving the inverse problem. So rather than, rather than finding out, rather than trying to compute the acceleration here, we're just taking an acceleration from the mathematical optimizer and we're computing what the error is. So it's kind of like when you're, when you're managing things. You just, rather than telling people how to solve a problem, you just tell them when the problem's not right. And you can just sort of give them, yeah, so. And eventually they, they solve it. So. Um, but the important thing is to give them good information about what's wrong. Okay, and, and general methods for this are conjugate gradient methods, um, Newton method, Gauss-Seidel iterations. And the one, one we use is, um, is, is truncated Newton, which is, so. Um, this is essentially the, essentially the same thing. Basically, we're minimizing residual. So the way in which the optimizer works um, is, again, it feeds back, sorry, it, it feeds accelerations, uh, computes, and then we give it back um, residual using the momentum equations. And eventually, it, it converges on a solution. So it, it will take a number of steps, like different optimization steps, until it gets to the right solution. And this solution, this potential field here is, is a, would, would represent the kinetic and potential energy of the system. Okay, and, and the way that um, Newton's method works is that it approximates everything by a piecewise quadratic function and then solves that. Um, and, what, and, and so the Hessian is a matrix that's, that's used to represent a quadratic here. Um, physically, what happens when you're solving these equations is the Hessian turns out to be the system inertia with respect to the degrees of freedom, um, plus a low-pass filter due to the implicit integration, and plus a filter due to the constraints and penalty methods. So in intuitively, what, what, what's actually solving is something very similar to F equals MA. But in this case, M is, has been modified um, to, to add things like, for example, the constraints add you know, very huge terms to two aspects of, of M so that you can have accelerations in directions where they're not allowed. Um, and stiff springs, you know, make these things bigger. So basically this here encapsulates the system inertia plus all the constraints in, into one matrix. And, I, and due to the nature of physics, actually, um, it turns out that um, the Hessian is, is um, symmetric and positive definite, which, makes, which basically makes it easier to, um, easier to solve. And that's based on, on the way the physical equations work. Okay. Now, just a note on semi-implicit integration versus um, fully implicit or is that um, often people, when they think of implicit integration, they'll first go to semi-implicit. And what semi-implicit does is it, um, it assumes that all that um, the Hessian is constant, so it assumes that all your constraints are, are fairly are fairly constant in their effect. So everything is only proportional. Um, the forces are only linearly proportional to um, velocities in the system. Um, th this can make things like spring damper systems very stable, um, but in reality, a lot of systems are more nonlinear. And things like unilateral constraints, like um, collisions and contacts, can't be um, are not taken into account because what those will do is um, back here with the with the Hessian. Um, if you have, um, say you have this thing in contact with, with something really hard, right? In the, he in the Hessian, if there's an acceleration going this way, it will resist that. And the corresponding inertia will be very, very high. It'll prevent any kind of motion in that direction. 
However, however if there's another force pushing up, um, then the contact can't pull. So as it as it as it um, the system finds that this force is pushing it upward, um, the Hessian will change itself um, to to have um, no corresponding inertia to that contact because that contact can't pull; it can only push. So um, it's important that a system can take those things into account, or else you get things like or, or else your your constraints can't transition. And this is important for animation because often you have things like joint limits, which can only apply a pushing or pulling force, like can only uh, only apply forces at the limits, um, but they want to be mostly free outside of the limits. And so those will give rise to, to big changes in the Hessian. Okay, so in order to, so that was basically um, a limitation of, of semi-implicit Euler. The fully implicit Euler um, requires a full nonlinear solve. Um, but, but what this does is it, um, it handles changing Hessians. And, and, the, and the way it does it is it does a piecewise linear solution. So it finds a linear solution, and it steps forward in that linear, so, sorry, it finds a linear solution to the problem. And then as it steps, it does a nonlinear line search through state space. Um, and, and that line search will, will, will recompute the Hessian as it goes. And it's a lot easier to do that because it's only along, along a line. And it will find where the Hessian changes. So one thing that might happen with this contact is it will say, okay, I've got this thing on the ground here. Um, it's computing a force to push the thing up. Um, initially, my Hessian says, okay, I'm, the ground, ground talk's gonna be pushing, but once it gets to the point where it can't push anymore, um, the Hessian will change a lot, and the line search will find that change. Um, and, then, and, and then deal with the Hessian, and then, and then find the newer solution. Because at that point, the quadratic is really not um, accurate anymore. Okay. And it's important to mention, though, that if, if the Hessian doesn't change that much, so if the no-context change, um, then um, it's, it's generally just as efficient as the, um, as the, as as the semi-implicit Euler techniques. So only, it only does extra work when, it, when it's required, when there's these changes. Okay, so basically, in the way we simulate um, rigid body, we, uh, so we're just going to guess at the acceleration, give it to the optimizer, step the system forward in time, compute the forces, and feed that back to the optimizer. Um, and, and it's important to mention, though, that in the case of unconstrained rigid bodies, Hessian is diagonally dominant. So we can actually solve these in one step, which is, which is really important. Um, so that the um, performance of, say, a single rigid body with this method is, is direct. It's only one step. It's not an iterative solution. It only does extra work when there's, when there's things that make it not diagonally sorry, not diagonally dominant, like constraints. Okay, so, um, basically the, the, the problem, computing this change in momentum, which we need for the residual, is essentially um, like inverse dynamics. So we can use similar techniques for that, and, and one of those is the Featherstone method. And generally, inverse dynamics is much easier to compute than forward dynamics. Um, and and there's a number of these that have been developed in the past. One, one common application for inverse dynamics is for like robotic arms. When they want to move them around, they have to compute corresponding for torques to meet certain accelerations. Um, and this happens in robotics, and it's also it's, um, very similar to what we want to do in animation, where you want to move things, give, give limbs certain, um, certain accelerations. And, uh, and, and, and if we want to have that physical, we need to know what the torques are that are required for that. 
if we want to have it interact with the physical system. Okay, so in the case of a single unconstrained rigid body, um, spatial velocity, velocity is a natural choice um, for the degrees of freedom, but in many cases we want to use um, different coordinates, as we, as we said before. So the way in which we convert from one to the other is, is a Jacobian. Jacobian, um, basically it's a transformation that goes from, imagine we have a, a, one, imagine we have a, a single body here that's constrained at a point and it has some angular velocity. We represented Q as that angular velocity. Then we could use the Jacobian um, to map that to the spatial velocity of a rigid body. Um, so it's basically what the, the Jacobian is just a, there's a lot, a lot of different kinds of Jacobians, but essentially they're all just partial derivatives that relate one state space to another. In this case, the main thing we're concerned with is always taking generalized coordinates and mapping them to the velocities, the spatial velocities of rigid bodies. Um, and, and part of the reason we need that is because spatial velocities, uh, sorry, the spatial velocities is what we use to compute the momentum of the rigid bodies. So just by using the degrees of freedom, we can compute all the momentum, momentum and then just do standard force balance equations um, like, like, we did with, uh, like we did when solving for a single rigid body. So and a lot of systems don't have to worry about the degrees of freedom. They can just deal with rigid bodies. And here's a gratuitous joke here. So, um, okay. And then the other thing we can do with, with, with Jaco the other thing that Jacobian does is, is it applies a mapping from um, generalized coordinates to sorry generalized coordinates to spatial velocities. It also provides a mapping back from forces to degrees of freedom. And so. What it actually looks like now is, um, before we had the momentum equations directly interacting with the optimizer, uh, if you put the Jacobian, there, Jacobian in there, you can use basically the same momentum equations, which are just very straightforward, um, but translate them back and forth into and out of the generalized coordinates. Okay, and, and the Hessian is, is actually what uh, when you put these guys together, you've, you've got the, when you multiply them together, you have the Hessian. Um, so now, basically, we can use the exact same system we did for the rigid body and, and generalize it to arbitrary degrees of freedom. Um, so this process here is exactly the same, except um, what we're doing is we're, is we're mapping the degrees of freedom, acceleration in degree of freedom space over to spatial vectors and we're mapping the forces back onto the degrees of freedom and giving that back to the optimizer. So it's just a translation layer, but everything else is the same. Okay, so just as an example, cons consider the uh, constra a constrained rigid body. So ra rather than representing this as a six degree freedom body with five constraints, okay, actually this is pegged here, so it only rotates around that point, but rather than representing this as six degrees of freedom um, with, with five constraints that, that hold it to that point, um, we can just give it one degree of freedom Oops. and then map that one degree of freedom onto, onto the velocities of, this, of the rigid body. So in this case, the Jacobian is just, for this axis, um, the cross product of, of this axis and this vector, which is um, omega cross r, which is how you compute the velocity for a translated point. And then the linear velocity is just um, this axis times the scalar. And so there's a, there's a, so this Jacobian is very straightforward. 
and we can just put this into equations and it will solve for the motion of this body rotating around with one degree of freedom. Okay, so consider we have um, two linked bodies. So um, th this one is a parent of this one. And this one has three, degree three degrees of freedom here, and they're connected at this point. So the degrees of freedom we're going to use is, is, um, is, is, is L0 has um, its spatial degrees of freedom, so it can move and rotate in space. And the other three degrees of freedom are this pivot here that allows the child to rotate. Okay, and, and so these are, are the, uh, the vectors relating these things here. And just from a, a kinematic standpoint, um, the velocity of this one here, uh, of L1, the, the, the uh, angular velocity is equal to the angular velocity of L0 plus the angular velocity at this point. And the linear velocity is equal to linear velocity of L0 plus the angular velocity um, crossed with this complete vector plus angular velocity here crosses that complete vector. So for a given velocity here and a given and a given angular velocity here, we can compute what the velocity here is. And this is essentially what the Jacobian is doing. It's just providing a simple mapping from degrees of freedom to what these, what these rigid bodies are doing, or how, how they're moving, what their velocities are. So yeah, so here's a, here's, Okay, so if, if we were to represent this as, as an explicit um, Jacobian, it would be a, 12 by, a 9 by 12 matrix, because we have 9 degrees of freedom, and we want 6 um, degrees of freedom out, which are the two spatial velocity vectors. Um, and, so, and a lot of times you can just write this as a black box matrix, but by using um, simple recursive techniques, um, or sorry, a lot of times you can write this as a Jacobian, but it's good to know what's happening here, and just see how, like, if this guy were to rotate, this one would rotate as well. And if this were to rotate around here, this body would, would have velocity there. And so you can just see exactly, physically, from very simple principles of, of just translating what, what effect of angular velocity does at a distance. You can, you can kind of get a feeling for what the Jacobian's actually doing. Um, so in, in, in general, um, the, way in, the way in which you can do do this sort of recursively is, is, is for, every, um, for every rigid body in, in a uh, frame, you just take the parent's rigid velocity, um, sorry, yeah, take the parent's spatial velocity, add it, add it to the local contribution of the child's degrees of freedom. And it generally requires a translation, which, which, um, which changes linear velocity. And you can kind of think of it as, as, a, um, as a big, you know, as a, a kind of a composite rigid body. So if this one is rotating about this point, that adds velocity here. And, what, and in the reverse process, what, what we have is we have forces um, being applied to, a force applied to this object is going to propagate back to its parent. Um, and, and the way in which it propagates is sort of the inverse, or actually the, in this case, the transpose of, of the Jacobian, which which takes angular velocities and, um, and, and adds, adds a cross product to those. So it's, it's kind of like, again, like this is a composite rigid body. If you were to apply a force here, um, it, would, it would translate to um, a force and a torque about, the, about uh, this body here. 
So um, now, now we have so now we have the Jacobians for the, for these bodies here. Um, we can compute the uh, we can compute the momentum, and then and put that back into residual. So um, as you based on this is a simple two-body diagram, but this can be recursively applied as, in a fairly straightforward manner to any number of degrees of freedom in an open-loop system, which is ideal for things like characters and things like cars and things that have you know, a lot of open-loop degrees of freedom. Well, it doesn't work when they're wearing things like straight jackets and handcuffs because of the closed loops, but you can do that with alternate methods. Okay, so on direct, direct computation of the Jacobian requires order and time and order and squared space because of, because of the matrix size, as I said before. But the recursive techniques, um, because they process child-parent relationships, they can, they can compute this, the product of the Jacobian and the inertia matrix in order and time. And these are uh, called the recursive Newton-Euler equations and, and are the basis for the Petherstone method. So that's basically what we've just described there. Um, we haven't gotten into depth about Actually, sorry. So, j just in um, in general, the way in which in, in the way in which it works is for a given set of accelerations, you propagate outward from the root to the leaves to compute all the velocities of all the children, um, and then you compute all the changes in momentum and all the forces at those points, and then you propagate them back up. And, and this is sort of a, this is a recursive technique. Um, Throughout the degrees of freedom, but it operates in order n squared. Sorry, order n time. So it's just linear in and linear out. And, and, and part of the reason why it's why it works in order n um, time is that is that for every child-parent relationship we have. So like the relationship between propagating this elbow, the forces from this elbow onto the shoulder, we're at, we're also taking into account the hand. Um, and if this were longer, in the, in the case of um, we would be taking into account all the children there. So every every operation, um, every operation of propagating from parent to child performs order n work. So we've reduced an order n order n squared problem down to order n time. Okay, so Jacobians are really nice because they're a good way. So well, mixing Jacobians with inverse dynamics is really nice because you can do just about any sorry any kind of system of degrees of freedom, um, and all you need to do is come up with a good way to compute the Jacobian. And, and so the, um, the recursive Newton-Euler methods are essentially just a way of computing the Jacobian in a order n time. Okay, so here's just an example of the um, picture of the crash demo, which we had an articulated character, we had a car as a finite element model, and, and pieces falling off and stuff, and, and they're, they're all using the same underlying system. They're all, um, this one here uses finite elements. Um, Combined with rigid bodies, and um, actually, sorry, combined with articulated body, which is the car and the wheel, and the, the element nodes are embedded in there. And this is an articulated character, and they all interact with the same system. So there's no, nothing, nothing different. It's just um, a different way of describing the degrees of freedom. Okay, the um, the articulate the uh, the method the recursive method I just described can be used to um, to solve forward dynamics as well in order and time. Um, unfortunately, it gets really uh, it gets a lot more messy when you have um, closed loops, and, and in general, this is um, if you're doing strictly forward dynamics, it can be efficient, but we don't really need to solve that. And, and the inverse solution, the inverse equations are much faster to solve. 
So, um, so one 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 additional benefit, uh, one nice way of working with um, with, with these uh, with relative coordinates and join angles is that we can set specific stuff to be kinematic um, with very few changes. So kinematic DOF are DOF that are, are not affected by physical forces that are basically rigid. So say your wrist was not going to, if you were to apply a force to the hand, assume that the wrist will not accelerate, the force will be directly propagated onto the arm or the elbow. Um, and this can be done for things like performance reasons. But it's very easy to just um, set DOF to kinematic. And this is what you might want to do for the fingers, because you don't really care too much about degrees of freedom there um, in a physical simulation, especially at lower LODs. And because we're, we're, we're only doing inverse dynamics and not forward dynamics, we don't have to um, we don't have to do anything special here. Um, and another great a good thing about this is that um, kinematic degrees of freedom reduce the number of unknowns that we have to solve for. So um, ha having having things like animation data playing back on a character can improve the performance of of the of the simulation. And um, and, and sometimes you can do things like bake um, certain degrees of freedom and only simulate them at lower frequencies than other, than other degrees of freedom, um, especially at a distance and stuff. So, and, and this, is, this is a lot more difficult to do with, with uh, rigid bodies connected by constraints, but very easy to do with, um, with generalized coordinates. So the way in which you play back um, animation to these characters is um, you initially assume that all degrees of freedom are, are purely kinematic, um, and you just kind of say, okay, well, you can use um, finite differences to compute what the accelerations are, and just put those um, accelerations into the system. And then what will happen is, from the physics um, standpoint, is it will compute um, it will compute the residual, which turns out to be at any joint. It's a torque required to maintain that acceleration. And, and so what you can do is you can limit that torque and say, okay, um, character has a certain amount of strength. Um, and if a force is too heavy at that degree of freedom, we're not going to let it, um, we're, we're going to limit that, that force. Um, and so it's going to have a dynamic effect. But if the forces are in reasonable ranges, the animation is going to be exact to what the animation was. So in this case, a, a straight playback of animation um, Yeah, so um, in this case, a straight playback of animation, um, there's zero unknowns, and it can be solved immediately. Um, and, and what happens during the solution is we've automatically computed all the torques, so we can just check all the joints to see if the muscles are strong enough to support that. So in most cases, you'll have no, um, you'll, you'll have a, the animational playback just as it is, but um, if, if the character gets hit, for example, um, then then some, some degrees of freedom will, will break limits and they'll have to be solved dynamically. And as it turns out, switching back and forth between dynamic and kinematic um, is perfectly legal um, within context of convex optimization, provided that the, um, the actual force the applied, so the muscle force, is always a limited function that doesn't, um, that strictly does not go down, or strictly does not decrease. Um, so the actual force that, the force that we're approximating here by, by just setting a kinematic degree of freedom is, is we're set, um, with a limit as we're saying that the, um, the, 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 the torque applied is, is the limit of what the muscle can apply and what the residual is. And the residual is, is what's required to make that acceleration. 
Um, another way of doing this actually is, is rather than rather than removing the kinetic, um, kinematic degrees of freedom, we can just set the residuals to zero, which, which happens when you apply this force. And, and the optimizer will, will do the exact same thing. So it's it's really by, by making dot um, kinematic, all you're doing is uh, you, you aren't changing the solution um, from what it would be if you applied that um, the torque that was enough to compensate for for the residual. Although th this functions like min um, are, are not will break in a semi-implicit integrator as as I mentioned before. So, um, because they'll change the Hessian dramatically. And if you, just back on the Hessian again, if you were to look at the Hessian corresponding to this elbow joint, um, if you had a, an actuator there, it would be extremely high at that degree of freedom because there'd be a very, very strong force resisting any change um, at that point. However, once it's broken into dynamic range, suddenly it's not, it's not infinite anymore. Okay. So again, as the way in which the nonlinear optimizer would solve this problem is you'd have forces being applied, and it would, it would sort of be finding its solution, assuming the joint is, is fully kinematic, fully actuated. Um, and then in the nonlinear line search, it will detect when, when the thing transitions um, and when dynamics for that degree of freedom needs to be applied. Okay, so yeah, limita limitations of the system. Um, Okay, so limitations of the system is uh, one possible um, problem with with nonlinear optimizers is, is finding the wrong um, finding the wrong route. In practice, I don't think this I haven't really encountered this much. But um, the worst offenders would be things like little rotational degrees of freedom with a lot of inertia. In which case, um, if you had a, a nonlinear system here um, and there was another local minimum way out here, it might find that one. But I think in most cases this isn't much of a problem, especially when you're dealing with accelerations uh, and not not for sort of systems. So, and then another limitation is that probably the most significant one is it's first order accurate. In academia, this is a real problem, uh, and most people don't even consider it as a viable solution because of that, um, and and the fact that it adds some damping to the system. But I think in, in general, if you're running at if you're running a simulator at 60 hertz, um, the accuracy is acceptable, and, and for most games. So, um, oops, yeah, summaries, there's lots of stuff covered. And, <laughs> and uh, qu questions? <laughs> Hi, Chris? I'll start out because uh, I got the microphone. Uh, I, I'm working on some uh, stuff like this is similar where we have uh, kinematic characters that can interact with physical objects due to the player's influence. And my question is how well the method scales, like what kind of performance trade-offs are you seeing when you go from these kinematically driven ones and shifting them dynamics? Because in my situation, for whatever reason, sometimes the players like to like drive through crowds of people. <laughs> yeah. And you have a bunch of kinematically driven characters and then all of a sudden I have to extract out the dynamic information and send them all dynamic and it just it's jarring as to that and I'm just wondering how you find the scaling between dynamic and kinematic. Actually we have like we have similar problems because you can drive through crowds of, of characters um, and I mean it's not a, it's not a focus game in, in Palo Alto but um, as far as the transitions um, the way we've had to do this is you is, is place limits on a number of things that transition from down from kinematic to dynamic um, 
And like for example, say a say a car hits. Um, get back to the character. Say say a car were to hit the character, um, then. Well, first of all, because because we're doing the inverse dynamics to compute the torques, it's it's the transition and the copying of that isn't really a problem. So we're already paying a certain cost. Um, so that, but the transitions are really cheap. But we can only transition a certain number of degrees of freedom that are most important. Um, so if you're driving through a crowd and there's a certain number of active degrees of freedom, then we sort of then we start limiting them in a priority order. And the priority order we use is generally um, the first thing that becomes dynamic is the uh, root off. So they have six degrees of freedom, and then the elbows. And then the um, and then hips, and then like the knees and, and the. Uh, so, like for shoulders. the initial phase, you treat them like a giant rigid body, and then other parts of it kind of come dynamic from there. Yeah, because well, it's really easy to transition these back and forth dynamically, um, so that you can just. So if we were just to say, okay, we'll take off the actuator or we'll limit the actuator on the root or whatever, then um, then it will just behave dynamically, and you do that on all, all the degrees of freedom. And the other thing we can do is is decouple the degrees of freedom. Um, so that um, rather than solving the whole system at once, we assume that certain degrees of freedom don't have um, an effect on, on their parents. Um, and what that lets you do is just is solve a much smaller system. But in, in general, I think um, it, it's difficult to say performance-wise um, how, uh, you know, because you know, systems are all different and, and whatnot. And, and, but I, I think the system generally works a lot better than than most systems because of that of, of the ease in which you can LOD things based on how far away they are and, and when there's a lot of things going on, only simulating the things that are closest to most and most important. And that kind of simple transition or lightweight transitions are, are really helpful. Okay. So first of all it is a very awesome work I think. And so I have two questions about the nonlinear optimization you're using. Yeah. So you you said uh, you you can also apply your nonlinear optimization for forward dynamics case. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Actually, um, that that wasn't. Uh, oh, sorry. When it, you mean the slide here? Yes. Uh, actually, what, what I meant is you can apply the um, apply the um, just the kinematics Euler techniques. Uh huh. Like here, where you've gone, um, you propagate it downward, uh -huh. um, and then you propagate upward. Right. And, and if you do another propagation downward with the inertia matrices, uh -huh. um, you can you can well the inverse inertia sorry with the inertia matrices and then you invert those you can right. you can do what's called the articulated rigid body inertia right. in which case you have an inertia matrix at every degree of freedom uh -huh. that relates um, that relates forces to accelerations rather than the other way around. Okay. So, but that's that's um, yeah. That, that's not the way in which we solve the four dynamics. We just solve it through the um, through the mat, the optimizer. Okay, and uh, so what what's the like uh, main obstacle for nonlinear optimizer to converge? Is it like a strength of the actuator actuator force or like external forces or what affect the performance of nonlinear optimizer the most adversely? Oh, so, so probably the worst things in terms of slowdowns are um, are very uh, very nonlinear systems, and and the major the most important things are are rotational joints. Rotational degrees of freedom with many, many contacts, which unfortunately is kind of common with characters. Um, so, like the heavier, for example, the, the lighter the feet are, um, the worse the worse things are. But one thing that's important also is because we have the um, animation data in there, we can add um, we can add muscle um, strength to the to the things like the ankles, and that actually stabilizes the system. Mm -hmm. 
because it, what it does is, um, you know, the Hessian that I mentioned, right? What you'd see in the Hessian is have very, very small numbers and very big numbers. Now, the preconditioner can help that a little bit, but the preconditioner is, is kind of difficult to make, you know, completely adaptive. Um, but, um, but because you have these, but, but if you have a muscle torque at that degree of freedom, the effect of inertia or what, the, what it looks like is actually much harder. So like, so like a force results in a less acceleration because of the muscle torque there, and that actually stabilizes the system. So I have another question. So, so what's the like the time breakdown between the optimization part and the Hessian computation part, especially for fully implicit one? When you go through the line search algorithm, you have to constantly update your Hessian metrics. So how much of the cost is, is it compared to the optimizer itself? Okay, actually, this is, a, this is an important point here. Um, is that the, we're not actually computing the Hessian. The Hessian is sort of like a, Hessian was what you normally compute if you did the, the Newton method. But what we're actually computing is the momentum of the system is actually the product of the velocity with the Hessian. So we don't care about the Hessian, we just care about the momentum. Right? Um, and, and the way, these, uh, the, way the, the recursive techniques work is they just compute the change in momentum. So we're computing the, basically the product of the Hessian and a vector rather than actually computing the Hessian, which is important because we don't want anything to be order n squared. If we can. And, and computing the Hessian, by definition, is order n squared. And, and solving it, which we do for forward dynamics, is order n cubed. So by using these equations, we can eliminate those ones. And also memory is really important. I mean, that's one of the considerations for, for these um, choice of degrees of freedom, is a large, a large cost is actually memory access and, and dealing with larger data sets. So um, minimizing, minimizing those by doing things like minimizing degrees of freedom and decoupling systems when you can to you know, enforce data locality is really important. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a couple of questions. Couple questions. Um, uh, I guess I'll just start with one. Uh, when you when you wrote out the dynamics equations um, that you're going to end up optimizing, you end up optimizing you, you end up doing a minimization instead of a root find. Um, if you read most numerical analysis textbooks, they say not to do that. And so, could you explain why it's better to do a scalar minimization than a, a vector root find? Oh no, sorry. Um, we're, we're doing a. Uh do you mean the, uh, the... Yeah, you compute E, and then you minimize that. And you might take yeah. derivatives inside and have a vector residual in there, but you're not actually doing a root find, you're doing a minimization, which you've, you explained this to me one time, and I can't remember what you said, so... Oh, um, I want sorry, you to explain we, it we are doing... We're not doing a root find, we're doing a minimization. Right, that's what I'm saying. So most, most textbooks say when you... Uh, um, and since you're smarter than most textbooks, here comes the insight. Most textbooks say, uh, uh, you know, if you've got a vector equation, go for the roots, don't munge it into a scalar, like by squaring it or anything like that, and then go for the minimization because you could create spurious local minima. But you yeah. decide to do that, and so can you talk a little bit about why you do that instead of going for the roots of the, you know, why do you dot with V, v prime there? Oh, actually, sorry. Um, we, <laughs> I might explain that incorrectly, but we, we actually, we, we don't. This is sort of a description of what the energy function is. It's important to know, um, partly for debugging, what, what, what it is you're actually, what, what you're actually solving, but um, this is just a, um, we, we don't compute this scalar product uh, at all, actually. We, we just minimize the function. But right, no, I understand that. Okay, um, if you take the thing inside the parentheses, yeah. you, could set, you could set that equal to zero and still get back your velocity, your accelerations. You could solve that instead yeah. of solving the other. You wouldn't even have a Hessian in the sense of the minimization with the Q dot, you know, Hessian Q 
You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Like, in other words, it's basically Newton's method versus the Newton. You know, there's the optimizer versus the root finder. And so, yeah. why do you you could you can form this problem well, well, as a root finding problem or as a minimization problem? And I'm not sure I understand why you do the latter. Well, the, 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 minim, the root finding problems are generally are designed to find all the roots, um, and, and they don't usually take they, take they usually take into account a very wide expanse of a function domain. Uh, in minimization problems, they're usually designed as just a very subset of that problem where we're very close to our solution um, and we just want to find the nearest local minima. And, and for dynamics, um, I believe the nearest local minima is always a correct solution. So, um, it, you know, a general, a general, and also it, we can do things like take into account coherency, like with our initial guess, um, which, which often, um, and we can use four dynamics to compute an initial guess that will often solve it at one step. So really what we're doing is, um, is, it, is the nonlinear equations, solving those is extremely hard, but, but um, a lot of the time what we end up with is a system that's very, very, very close to linear. But, so we only have to deal with the nonlinear problems on, on kind of extreme cases. Um, and a root finder will, will generally treat it as a nonlinear to begin with and find all the roots in a certain domain. Right. So that kind of leads into my second question, I guess, which is that um, you... We've been talking about this for five years. <laughs> yeah. You never seem to run into problems with uh, lots of spurious local minima around, and I always do. And I tend to like, and, and Ottman does as well. So it's like, what are you doing? Are you just like, do you have a giant stick that you beat your designers with to just keep your potentials really small? Or like, how do you not? Because as soon as you hook something up to the mouse, you get these gigantically stiff systems. Yeah, I, see, actually, I added this slide at the very end here. Um, it's a limitations. This was a. Uh, I had a slide basically based on our conversation yeah. for the last couple of years, right? <laughs> but you know, the secret, the truth is, I actually haven't really encountered this much. I, I think I think that it may just be an engineering problem, which is um, in that if you have a nonlinear line search, um, if you take sufficiently small enough steps to begin with, you're probably not going to find a, a local minimum. And I think that um, I, I think that Atman um, has has been very successful with certain techniques that I. Um, which are, I think, implicit, uh, sorry, semi-implicit? He uses semi-implicit, but I use a fully implicit, and there's still tons of spurious, I mean, with lots of stiff joint angles, lots of rotational stuff going on. Yeah, well, I, I think, like, um, based, on, based on what I, uh, when I was trying to formulate this problem, trying to figure out why it was happening, it seems like you need accelerations of close to, to you know, 36,000 radians per second. Now, this isn't the case with the um, first-order equations, which, which um, in which case this is the square root of this. Which is much smaller because right. they basically um, the rate of change of, of the so the derivatives of q are much more nonlinear than the accelerations like derivative of q dot. Right. right. The accelerations are much much more linear. So you're taking like a, a space that's about 60 times if you're running at 60 hertz. You know, some, some kind of a, you know fuzzy relationship there, but about 60 times as linear when you're working with the accelerations versus when you're working with finding um, finding a velocity in a first order system. So I think that just may be the case, is that, um, is that we have 60 times more freedom, and that's how the designers manage to do that. It's not infinite. Like, I'm sure it could happen, but um, I, I haven't seen it much. And, and, when, when I do, and, and if it does happen, it might not be noticed, because it would generally be with rotational degrees of freedom, like the ankles and stuff, and it hit joint limits and stuff. And so. Are there other questions? Because I'll just keep asking questions until someone else asks a question. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm curious about how you handle kind of feeding back 
so the animation drives the physical system, and yeah. the physical system controls motion, and then how do you handle feeding that back into overall character movement? Because I, I assume you're not actually you know simulating biped locomotion or anything like no. that. See, that's 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 a that's kind of a, another limitation I haven't got to there. And, and actually, the reason why I didn't talk about that is that's that's a really hard problem. <laughs> so I wanted to cover the things that are a little bit easier. But I, I think that people will start to uh, sorry. like the, the solution. The solution we use, which I'll, I'll cover really briefly, is is um, is based on when these um, when, when you pass the limits. Of the degrees of freedom, um, sorry. When, when when you pass the limits of the actuators, so if the forces are going beyond that, um, then the animation. The first thing it does is it all it always computes it computes where it is rather than doing a straight playback. It computes where it is, so things don't get out of sync. So if you're walking and you're and maybe you got you got slowed down or you got knocked back, it doesn't continue playing where it was. It, it has a feedback system, and that that part's kind of easy. You're you're just searching to find out where where you are based on what the degrees of freedom are. And what they should be, so you might so you might like basically slow down your playback just by doing a simple kind of a simple search and interpolation. Now, in terms of feedback for the characters um, to make them do things like balance, um, we actually use like a, kind of a procedural system there. Um, it's that just basically tries to, um, for a given animation, it kind of perturbs it to to try to get a center mass o over the support. Um, and then, and then, kind of combines it. It it looks kind of decent for for what we're doing. I don't I don't know if it's a. I, I think that someone will develop a really good system for that, and and then talk about it a lot more. But our, our systems are mostly like empirical solutions. As do you do you use some kind of ad hoc system to decide you know when a character is so far out of balance that they have to fall now and things like yeah, that? Yeah. Well, we we just do that based on on what the um on on, on the inverse dynamics information. So once it gets to a certain threshold, they tend to fall over. And then, as far as getting up, we just have get up animations. So they kind of interpolate themselves to a, a neutral pose, and then get up. And the neutral, and, and that part doesn't usually look good because they fall down and then they go to a neutral pose. And, and sometimes they go into. We, we should probably have more neutral poses. Right now, we only have one. Um, so whatever they fall into, they kind of move with their with their muscles. And sometimes it causes them to kind of rotate a little bit on the ground because they're kind of pushing themselves and dragging themselves, and then they get up. During your search, you, 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 you mentioned this a couple of years ago at GDC. Like, you, once you turned off actually kinematic actuation, and then you search back through all your animations for the correct degree of freedom match for what the current configuration. Like, is that search like a cache thing, or how, how, how much time oh. do you spend searching through your animations? Oh, we never search more than one frame back, right? It's always a direct like one frame. It's like how far have I moved? Like, so like you basically have two keyframes, right? And you're somewhere in between those keyframes. Then you know, we, we never searched back beyond the first one. Okay, so if you get knocked by the dynamics way out of that thing, you'll snap back. Right? Yeah, we'll find one of the other keyframes. The fewer keyframes you have, the better in terms of that from that standpoint. But it, for motion capture, you have tons, so it doesn't work. Like for our current animation data, we don't have all that many keyframes, mostly because the characters are kind of like running around and they're sort of, sort of small. Um, in our last project, we had robots, which were a lot of it was more procedural. But yeah, so.
through that, you know, am I still getting the, the same kind of uh, drive force from my locomotion? Or okay. Okay, so actually what we do um, here is, is, um, is basically when, when things are, the, the root actually has some special handling in this. Um, and what, what you do is for, for a given configuration, we'd compute the, the forces that, that are driven, uh, sorry, the forces that are applied to the root um, must be some product of, of friction forces from the feet. And this is only when things transition because it's kind of more expensive to compute this. Um, and then, so, th so the force here is actually is limited in a way that is that it's, it's always possible from a very high friction to be applied to the root. So if you got if you got hit here, for example, uh, so, so you got hit down at the hips, right? Rather than rotating above the constraint, you would you would kind of fall below because the feet because the the, the force is pushing you forward would be projected on from the feet upward, and they wouldn't be able to apply a torque the opposite direction. Uh, so, so two things. First of all, I just wanted to make it clear that you had already opened the word art thing, and I was just saying if you're going to pick <laughs> word art, you should pick like the ugliest possible one. Uh, but that said, like I have a totally remedial question on the solver, uh, which is, you had a di oh, in fact, that's the diagram. Oh, yeah. um, on one of, on, on this diagram, it kind of it it seems to me that like okay, so I totally get the Jacobian momentum equation part and computing the residual and doing projection back and forth. But the thing that I was kind of confused about, because I'm not, I don't really know that much about mathematical optimizers, is that like, so is the optimizer actually solving in the generalized coordinate space? Yeah. Because that's is. what it looks like from the slide. Yeah, it is. Okay, so you've got, so the optimizer like just says, well, hey, you know what, you've got generalized coordinates, and I'm assuming that you can compute the derivative of this that I need, so just do it, and then I solve, and that's the space that turns out to work just fine. You doesn't have to be in any kind of regularized yeah, anything. It doesn't, well, it turns out that, that your degrees of freedom are, are generally um, always going to have a positive definite um, response with respect to the momentum equations, just based on, on the way physics works. Um, and so, so in which case, you can use any, any degrees of freedom you want to. Like, spatial velocities are just arbitrary. Um, and the main reason we use them is for the momentum equations. Um, so we can basically form, formulate the residual. But we project those back on Jacobian. An important thing here, though, is that mathematical optimizers um, you always want to minimize the degrees of freedom, right? So it makes a very natural choice to re reduce them through the Jacobian, which um, you know maps from like a very high degree of freedom s system into into the minimal coordinate set. And the other thing is it's not very good at handling constraints, which we have to propose as penalties, right? Um, so um, by, by again by using relative coordinates, we can eliminate most of the constraints, except um, and and the first thing the other thing is that because we're using penalty methods, um, when the error gets really high. You know, sometimes the penalty methods are, are very hard to minimize. Sorry, like when, when there's a lot of things going on, they're harder to minimize. And from an LOD standpoint, you'd like to be able to have some free weight, leeway there in terms of how much error is produced um, so that you don't have to do as many iterations. If you're, if you're using um, uh, potentials to hold the character together, then that might translate into the character kind of falling apart. Right? In this case here, the, the constraints are always maintained. I, that's exactly that was what I was just going to ask. I was oh, going to yeah. say, like, so what exactly do you have to pass back besides just the the current uh, degrees of freedom? Is it just derivatives, and that's that's all the other information you need, or what? 
Yeah, so actually, if you use like a Jacobi system or something, you could do it without, or Gaussito, you could do it without derivatives, but it's really not a good idea. So in terms of computing derivatives, what we use is, um, is, is, is automatic differentiation, which is basically just kind of like a, a preprocessor that takes very simple um, operations and, and converts and, and computes the derivatives from those. And you have to do it, at, um, for things like the min-max function, though, you have to do it at, at different points because they have different states. But for general... Um, for, because basically because it can't handle the derivative there, but for most most systems like with, of any kind of polynomial order, um, which you can and for trig we convert those to polynomial order, it can handle it perfectly. Um, so yeah, the derivatives are important for guiding the optimizer, and that's actually a big topic. I mean that's a whole a whole new topic, but it's important. So uh, you had one bullet point about optimizing by uh, pulling certain joints out of the simulation you had you know one quarter of the time yeah um, reduce frequency yeah you know I sort of have two questions about that what's your DT when you're only you know simulating at one quarter of the time and what kind have you seen artifacts and what kinds well yeah well there, there's definitely artifacts actually this is generally only done on child degrees of freedom because the objects things will actually move slower this, I mean, this is really error-prone, error but what it does allow you to do is for, like, say you've got a character and the stress is really high and you want to make, like, the elbows and the wrists and everything all kinematic. If you simulate them at, say, a quarter of the rate, um, and when they're not being simulated, they're just somewhat damped, you'll at least find an equilibrium that's, that's not, like, rigid, right? Okay. So that they'll, that they'll basically what will happen is they'll be a lot more damped than they really should be, but as they're falling, because they still are getting some forces once in a while, They'll reach an equilibrium, which is which is somewhat natural and not and not like because if we were to make them completely kinematic, the character might have an elbow here and he might be lying on the elbow. Okay, right? so, so you don't, for example, try to accumulate additional dt over that time and then sort of hope the equations will. You just you, you merely apply one fourth of the. Yeah, we, we uh, yeah um, we, we could. The problem is there is is you can extrapolate right, and and that's a very effective technique, but um, it. When I, tr I actually didn't try it because I thought there'd be stability problems, and, and it might be that's it might kind of what I'm asking. Misbehave. Actually, yes. <laughs> in, in general, like when things get really ugly, I, usually it's better if there's more damping and things behave less um, than than extrapolating for a more real, realistic solution. And, and the most thing, and, and mostly what this does again, it makes it makes the limbs look more rigid, um, but at least they'll re reach an equilibrium, um, like when the character falls onto the ground. Yeah, yeah. especially in, well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that, but also in terms of the building predictability are really, really important. And one of the reasons also is performance, because it tends to make objects, for example, sleep more readily, you know, lose, you know, so they have, like, almost no energy. They, anything that drains energy out of the system is kind of good for performance. Okay. And that, I, I guess I have one last question, which is having something in the simulation be damped, like when you run through a car, you know, is okay if... It's, it's not noticed, right? So the spook has effect. No one knows that there are stables holding the vampire's cloak on, right? So have you have you done any investigation into what can I just avoid simulating and perceptually get away with? Hmm. It's an interesting question because, um, like, most ga most games look really bad, so that by comparison you can do a lot. <laughs> I, th I think part of... <laughs> I think part of the reason why like physics looks can look good like in, in our, our crash 
Actually, in E3 crash demo, we didn't show the crash test dummy um, for, for, which is, uh-oh, what happened there? Uh, hmm. Right here. So we, did, we didn't show this at, uh, we showed this at GDC, but not at E3. Um, and this was a character getting simulated and, and bouncing off things and stuff. And realistically, it's just a decent simulation. I don't think it's anything special. But people thought it was incredible because they're used to think, seeing things that are really bad. So um, as far as what you can get away with, I think that it's, lucky, it's nice that, you could, that it's scalable because, um, because often performance is more important than realism, like in worst case. Um, and as far as getting away from things, I, I think... Um, well, sorry, actually, actually probably a, a more inter a, an interesting question is that from a priority standpoint, how do you prioritize right. in terms of what you can get away with for a given cost? Yeah, so... Like I would damn people behind the camera sooner than I would damn people in front of the camera. Yeah. Right? Assuming that, I mean, you could get nasty artifacting out like that, of course. Yes, yeah, so, so actually part of the way we, the way we do that right now is, is, is as you said, that, that leads to non-deterministic behavior, but it's not really a bad thing, I guess. We just deal with that. Um, and the other thing is that um, is, is the animators um, prioritize degrees of freedom for things, oh. and they, they prioritize. Um, well, they, they can compute an, an automatic one based on inertia uh, of the other things, um, and and they can um, and they can also explicitly prioritize if they want to. And the same thing for objects. Okay. So, David, I saw when you were looking at your characters there that you would put the root of the character of the chest, which is uh, different to most game animation I've seen, uses the pelvis as the root of the character. Was yeah. that for a particular physical reason? Yeah, but what's closer, well, it's, it's not exactly just. They try to keep it at the center of mass of the whole object. It doesn't need to be at the center of mass, um, but it's more stable if it is, in general. So, like, the closer you are to the stable mass of the whole system, the better. And, and we can just translate animations, you know, back and forth. So that they're, yeah. Um, one other question, which was, when you add constraints to the system, do you ever try and add them as a degree of freedom? So what I'm asking, I guess, is if I have a barrel and I roll it down a slope and it hits a hanging sticky tentacle and gets pulled up into the air, then, for example, for example <laughs> would, you, would you do that by restricting the number of degrees of freedom of that rigid body and actually changing the hierarchy of bodies, or would you do that by adding another constraint and therefore more penalty forces into the system? Well, the way we the way we do it is is another constraint with more penalty systems, with more penalty forces. But I actually think it's better to do what you suggested. Um, we aren't doing that yet, but I'd like to, I'd like to to do that. And, and actually, some like in a lot of formulations of solving Lagrangian and stuff, they always project onto the on a completely generalized coordinates that have no constraints. So, like for any kind of physical system, you can always eliminate the constraints and only solve for degrees of freedom and have no penalty forces. But it just takes a lot of work to find those degrees of freedom. I think in the case you mentioned, it would actually probably be, uh, it wouldn't be that difficult, and it's actually a very good idea. Sorry? Yeah, it was closed loops. It, it, just a, your choice of degrees of freedom changes. You actually can, um, although the degrees of freedom are not always the same. Like, like you, for example, if it's just the, um, if you can always find a set of degrees of freedom that by eliminating, by eliminating them, but then part of the problem is solving that system, um, solving, solving for the inertia matrix of that system um, is extremely complex because what, what you're doing is you're throwing the constraint equations into the inertia. 
Like you're projecting it onto the null space of the constraints, and then you've got this really dense matrix. And you have to solve that in order n cube time for the free degrees of freedom. And it's really, for, for like a character, it's, it's really not much of a win because you suddenly have this uh, um, very, very dense um, system. Like for example, say I'm in contact with here. I could, I could remove some degrees of freedom of the wrist um, and make them basically some function of, of, of the rest of the body's degrees of freedom. And I can compute what that function is analytically. Um, and then remove those degrees of freedom. The problem is, is that this risk now is coupled all these degrees of freedom very heavily because any, any kind of um, emotion anywhere could affect that one. So, so, but there are people who, who have done that, they, um, called projection methods usually. We've projected onto a manifold that's constraint-free. Other questions from the front? No, I think that's it. Thanks, Dave. Okay. Uh, Thank very much. I'm just waiting till everybody has a quality a physics engine like his in the game, and then we can all do, like you said, that that's going to be the triangle. We just got to get all engineers like David in our, uh, in our groups to do these for us, or he needs to give it all to us. Uh, so anyway, uh, please, uh, uh, we have feedback forms we passed out this morning, so please uh, uh, fill those out. I believe lunch is next. Uh, so yeah, uh, we're going to have lunch, same place, same channel, different food, I think. So we'll see. Thanks.